The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, I want to welcome you guys to Temple Bible Church. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, one thing I need to remind you about is the men's conference is coming up. Uh, this the end of this month, January 29th through 31st. So you can go to the hub of our website to get signed up. A lot cheaper this year than in the past because we can't go anywhere and spend the night. So we're going to be here. Uh, and so you can check it out on the website. We'd love for you to be part of that. Uh, also, we love the fact that some of you in this room braze, braved the uh, snowpocalypse of 2021. Uh, it's just fun to watch. Uh, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, we got lots of crazy snow, but it's always fun to see what snow does to people, you know. Uh, my, my son, he's 10 years old, Noah. I, I get up this morning to put a brisket on at six in the morning because what's better than a snowy day and a brisket, right? So I threw one on my, my uh, Smoking for Dummies pellet grill. And, uh, and so I threw that on there. But before I did, I was seasoning at the kitchen counter and I look over the couch and I see Noah and it's six o'clock. Nobody's ever up that early in our house except maybe Owen sometimes. And I look over and he's fully dressed he has his shoes on and his fuzzy socks. I'm like, no, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm getting ready for the snow. <laughs> I'm like, all right, buddy. Well, we'll see what happens. And of course, he's out there. I think he's sledding on our five-foot hill next to our house. So, um, so it's good times for the snow. Hopefully, we can enjoy it a little bit and stay safe. So we're back to our study in 1 Corinthians. Took a little break from it over the Christmas season uh, for Advent, but we're back to 1 Corinthians. We're looking at chapter 10 this morning, and um, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think I could say uh, pretty certain that all of us struggle with. I know personally I struggle with, and when you start listening in, I think you'll understand that you may struggle with it as well, and the topic is idolatry. And so it's a, it's a topic that oftentimes we don't want to face and don't want to uh, focus on, but 1 Corinthians 10 is all about this topic, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to look at the first five verses and see Paul give a history of idolatry. So verse 1 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here you have Paul giving a little bit of a history lesson to the church of Corinth. And he's trying to help them understand all that the Israelites have been through, at least a little picture of it, at least, of what they've been through. And I think two points we can see even in here is, number one, he talks about Moses. And he talks about the baptism of Moses. And I think we need to be really clear here to understand he's not talking about Moses being a godlike figure. Uh, he's talking about Moses being the spiritual leader, just like we can see in the New Testament when they talk about the baptism of Paul or Apollos and who are you with. And, and so it's identifying yourself with this spiritual leader so we can see that Moses is this priestly leader chosen by God. One of the most fascinating and cool things, though, that we can notice also is in verse 4 where he talks about the fact that they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. And who was that rock? 
Jesus Christ. This is all the way back. These stories are all the way back in Genesis and Exodus, yet you find that Christ was there. Oftentimes we think about Jesus in existence of what we just celebrated, Christmas, right? He came to earth, born of a virgin, and he started his life there. But we don't factor in a lot of times and we don't really consider the fact that Jesus has always been and he always will be. So he was there even with the people of Israel drinking from that spiritual rock. And when I see that statement, it reminds me of Jesus speaking in John 7, 37, where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That Jesus is our spiritual drink. He's the one that quenches the thirst that nothing else can quench. So Paul, he's writing to a predominantly Greek culture, and so that's important for us to understand. He's connecting the dots to help them understand the history behind Christianity. And he writes, he puts it this way, one of Paul's main aims in this letter is to get the Corinthians to realize where they are on God's timetable. They're like actors who have blundered onto the stage in the middle of a performance and don't even know which act they're in. They need to discover what has happened so far, how the plot is working out, and how the people who played these characters in previous acts managed to get things wrong. So here they are trying to learn from Paul and learn this history. And so speaking of learning from history, he goes on in verse six to kind of spell this out a little bit. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So here's these examples he gives of what the Israelites did. So there's a specific theme that Paul's addressing here, and it's a hard issue, which is called idolatry. And he gives some specific results here of the Israelites' idolatry. If you move along in verse seven, we say, it says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and, eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Imagine being the Corinthians reading this and hearing Paul say this, you're like, oh wow, this is pretty devastating. A lot of destruction in these verses. But that's what comes from idolatry. An idolatrous, self-consumed life produces, specifically here at least, sexual immorality, lack of faith, and a constant complaining spirit. Now, those are just three of the things that come from living a life of idolatry, but that's what Paul wanted us to understand and wanted the people of Corinth to understand. You know, early on in my life, I experienced a lot growing up based on where I lived and my dad being a pastor. The area that we lived in was an area and still is that is not super affluent, it's very blue collar. And uh, there's a lot of struggles that are involved with a, a blue collar lifestyle and, and one that's just working hard and, and just getting after it. And there's a lot of, of, I don't know, temptations and a lot of difficulties. And so growing up, I saw my dad um, trying to meet the needs and help meet the needs of very needy members of his church. 
Um, I would say probably half the church at least had some kind of major struggle in their lives, whether past or still presently dealing with, whether it was drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, abuse in the past, whatever that might be, these struggles. And as a, as a young man, as a young boy, I would look at that and think, man, this is such a drag. And if I could feel this way, I wonder how my dad feels when he's constantly being called out in the middle of the night to go help put out this fire, so to speak, whether it's an attempted suicide or this woman who for the fifth time is in the hospital from a drug overdose and things like that, that you just feel the weight of this sin and these idolatrous behaviors. And oftentimes I just felt, oh man, if I can feel this, how heavy is this on my dad and those are serving them? But I think as I matured, and when I say matured, probably out of my teen years into adulthood, I began to grasp the value of where God put me. And he began to open my eyes to see the wisdom that can come from learning from those around me. And this is what Paul's saying in verse six. This has been put in scripture as an example for us so that we won't make the same mistakes. I'm confident in saying that maybe God taught you a number of lessons as well over 2020. A lot of different lessons learned. These lessons were probably born out of having our idols of comfort, schedule, control, and other things exposed to us. And that God's revealed a lot of our idols to us over this past year. Maybe we've also seen many unfortunate opportunities to observe failures of idolatry in those around us as well, including this past week. Being able to see what happens when we place certain things in the place of God and then it all falls apart and what do we do? Paul's trying to tell the people of Corinth and uh, in essence encouraging us, these future believers, to not let these lessons go to waste. These lessons have been given to us for a reason, whether personal or ones we can learn from others around us. Don't let them go to waste. So since Paul was inspired to remind us of these Old Testament examples, I I felt the need for us to at least focus on one and get into a little bit of the detail of one, which is the golden calf. And you can find that story in Exodus 32. We don't have time to read the whole story, but if you look at Exodus 32, you can see the details of how the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They were freed from slavery. They came out into the wilderness. They were guided by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And they're in the wilderness And they're waiting on Moses. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And he goes up to get uh, commands from God and get instructions from God. And the people of Israel are down below and at the base of the mountain. And because they can't wait and because, of course, they're idol worshipers too, they decide we're going to not be able to wait. We're going to be impatient. We're going to melt all our gold and put it into a calf and bow down to this golden calf. But in order to look at this uh, idolatry that kind of came out in them that day, it's important for us to see the history here. You know, we might think of their enslavement in Egypt as a somewhat short period of time, maybe 10, 20 years. I don't know what you think about that, or maybe you've studied it and you actually know. But oftentimes I just think, oh, they were there for a little bit and then God freed them. But we really need to see what God says about their Captivity in Genesis 15, 12 to 14, it tells a different story. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. 
They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So why bring this up? Why bring up that history there? Because I think it's important for us to comprehend how long they were exposed to this idolatrous culture of the Egyptians. Generation after generation watched as the people of Egypt worshiped other gods and no doubt the Israelites were influenced by that. You think they woke up one morning just thinking, let's throw together a golden calf? There are things they watched over hundreds of years, examples of taking matters into your own hands and creating your own gods. It was a culmination of generations of faithless, selfish, idolatrous choices. The golden calf, that was just a representation of a heart issue. It's always good to ask ourselves, what is the real idol here? It wasn't a physical golden calf. That wasn't the real idol. So what was the real idol? For the Israelites, it was wanting a physical God rather than trusting a God they couldn't see. Desiring a God they could control, which also affected them in future years when they demanded a king, right? They wanted King Saul. Well, God was their king. Well, they wanted someone they could control. They wanted something they could see, feel, touch. So they demanded that future king as well. It's important to note that time and time again, they had miraculous demonstrations of a loving, caring God, but they still chose to pursue something they could control. Does that sound familiar? Is that convicting to you as it was to me to think about how I always look for control and not release these things to God. So not only does he give a history of Israel, but he also, if you jump down to verse 18, he gives a little bit of present day situations where idolatry might show itself. In verse 18, he says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It's interesting, that word there, jealousy. When we give in to idols and worshiping idols, the Bible talks about God being a jealous God. And he mentions that specific word there. So their idols are revealed, and it's interesting, when I read that passage, I was like, well, how in the world does this apply, and what does this even mean? So looking into it a little further, it gave me a little bit of help understanding this. In Corinth, the temple functioned as a central community gathering place, kind of like some of the restaurants you'd like to visit back before March, like the ability to be able to go and say, hey, let's all meet up at, you know, even after the service, you know, we're going to go to lunch together. And you have some of these restaurants even that unfortunately just built big community tables, right? So that people could sit in large gatherings and now you have two people on each end of them. And so these, uh, this temple gathering place, it was a place not just for sacrifices, but for people to come and eat together. And it was a community thing. And they would come together in Corinth and sit around these sacrificial places in these, with these sacrifices offered to idols. 
And so the Corinthian believers, they initially stayed away from these things, being uh, coming out of idol worship and being converted, but now they were feeling a little bit more comfortable, feeling a little bit more comfortable because they recognized the emptiness of idols and the power that they didn't have. So Paul was describing them kind of coming back around and getting comfortable, and he didn't want them getting comfortable around these pagan temple sacrifices and practices. He wanted them to have distinct separation from anything related to demonic practices. So this challenged the potential idolatry in them, and I'm sure we struggle with this as as well, the idea of wanting to fit in with culture. The challenge of them wanting to be a part of culture, and how do I stay separate enough? And these were the main gathering places, so they were feeling more and more comfortable, even though there's demonic activity going on there. And so it's a challenge to think about this idol of wanting to fit in. As a junior high pastor, I've been a junior high pastor, a youth pastor for over 20 years. And over that time, it's been a ton of time spent with middle school students. And as I think about this idea of wanting to fit in, no group of young people or people in general makes me think of uh, fitting in or wanting to fit in more than middle school. It's just the situation you find yourself in. You get into middle school and you're trying to figure out, you know, do I dress this way? Do I talk this way? What music do I listen to? Do I try out for a sport or do I get in a band? Do I have all these decisions? Do I dye my hair pink or blue? You know, all these different things that you struggle with. How do I do this? It may change from week to week and it just seems like really schizophrenic as a middle school student just trying to figure out where do I fit, right? And that idea and that drive is always this wanting to fit in, wanting to find my place. And oftentimes I think, well, this kid, as a junior high pastor, even a a, a dad of kids of this age, they're eventually going to grow out of this, right? You hope they do. But as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? How many of us have grown out of this? How many of us adults have actually grown out of the desire to fit in? And I would argue that not many of us have. It just looks different. And we're trying to fit in the culture and even sacrificing, in some sense, our families and our spirituality and our relationship with Jesus to fit in in different ways and decisions that we have to make or, or that we're faced with to lay at the altar maybe this element of our family so that we can be a part of this. And that's fill in the blank for you. I can name a bunch of them that I struggle with. But we all still struggle with this idol of wanting to fit in, just like the people of Corinth did. So not only does he give us a history of idolatry, he also gives us the experience of idolatry. In verse 11, he talks about the history or or the experience of how one gets into idolatry and the effects it has. Verse 11, he says, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So just like in verse 6, it's kind of a repetition here in verse 11. He's saying, hey, this has been given to you as an example, right? You've been blessed with these warnings. In verse 12, he challenges them to consider how arrogant and comfortable you can get when you're someone chosen by God. 
When you're a child of God, there's this temptation to feel good about yourself, to look down on others, to get comfortable because you've been chosen by God, because uh, you are a believer and you're secure in your relationship with God. And so there's this arrogance, there's this comfort level we have. And he says here in verse 12, "Let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Reminds me of Proverbs that talks about pride going before destruction. Be careful. When you start feeling comfortable in your faith, you start feeling comfortable as a believer, that's a dangerous place to be in. A dangerous place to be in because your comfort often leads to laziness. Your comfort often leads for you to be able to cease stopping to realize the idolatry that's in your life or other sins that you battle with. Stephen Um puts it this way, theologian says, idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. He goes on to describe the fact that these things are just the ordinary things of life. We see that in Israel's history. It manifested itself in their hunger and their thirst. He explains that they're not an end in themselves, but a means to an end. So the, the, your idolatry just surfaces and displays itself in different things, Right? So, for example, maybe your desire for recognition, your desire for personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control, and so many other things manifest itself in actions. But it's what's below that really drives you. He goes on to say, whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we are committing idolatry. Now, there were a number of examples that I was thinking about this week on what should I tell, what kind of illustration should I give for this. Uh, I don't know if you were asleep all last week, but there was plenty of ammunition concerning idolatry. But you know, God kind of slapped me in the face a little bit, really punched me in the face. I don't know if he, can he do that? I think he did. Uh, Not literally, but figuratively, I, I was kind of slapped around to say, you know, You can point out all these other people and their idolatry, but how about you deal with your own? And so this story kind of deals with my own. I was was at a basketball game with my oldest daughter, actually watching it with my younger daughter, watching my oldest daughter play. And uh, it was up in Waco. And I have to preface this with this statement because I just want to make myself not look so bad, uh, is... uh, I experienced the worst referees that I've ever experienced in my life. And I've been playing basketball since I was four. And it was just a horrible experience to the point that, of course, I had to say something, right? I see Doc back there. He's he's a referee. He knows how I feel. Uh, So I've never yelled at him, though. Uh, But uh, just the idea, I don't know if you've ever been there before. You know, you're in the middle of the competition and you just feel that that ref needs to know it was horrible, right? Well, it was so horrible. It was happening like every 10 seconds, right? And I felt myself like getting out of control. And I was saying things, you know, and just kind of letting this dude, actually two out of three of them, know how I felt. And it was all about pride, right? Now it's competition and I get into it. But to the point that it was so ridiculous that I actually got a warning. 
like someone came up to me and said, you need to chill out. I'm like, okay, cool. I know I'm being an idiot. You know, I'll try to calm down here. So I literally did. Like my daughter sitting next to me. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I got to stop. So I did. I actually stopped and I was cool the rest of the half. But apparently I wasn't cool enough for that ref because he went up to that same guy that gave me the warning and said, he's got to go. And I literally was dismissed and told I needed to watch the second half from the lobby. Like, how bad is that, right? I know none of you have ever experienced anything like that. It's just me. But here it is, my pride. This was my idol at that moment, wanting to be right. And not only wanting to be right, but wanting him to hear that I'm right, right? And that's it. And I don't know about you, maybe you don't struggle with that, but there's many people in our culture that do right now. You want to be right about this, and you fill in the blank, because I could get really personal right now. But you fill in the blank. I want to be right about this. I want to be right about that. I want to be heard, whether it's with a spouse, with a friend, with a coworker, with your own children. You have to be right, and you have to let everybody know. And the challenge I got, the push I got, the slap in the face I got was, hey, you don't have to let everybody know you're right. Swallow your pride. Quit making it this idol. You know, Christ, he gives us the opposite example. He lived a life free of idolatry because he was firmly planted in his father's will. He didn't have to have this desire uh, to, for other people to be convinced that he was right. He told the truth. He spoke openly and boldly. But he didn't have to convince people that he was right. He was secure in his father. Tim Keller puts it this way. You may have a full, devout set of doctrinal beliefs. You may be trying very hard to believe and obey God. However, what is your real daily salvation? What are you really living for and depending on? What is your real, not your professed God? You see, when you pray and work for something and you don't get it, and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. So maybe we need some help assessing our idolatry this morning or potential for idolatry. Here's three questions you can ask yourself. First of all, what is our desire pointing at? What is my desire pointing at? What is the end goal here? Musical artist Odd Thomas in his song Messiah, he states, I suppose what exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at most of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. Maybe take some time to meditate on that. Secondly, what is our affection pulling us toward? And then third, what is our end goal here? If you don't have community of people around you to help you answer those questions, I encourage you to find community. Because oftentimes, I know myself, when I'm dealing with idolatry, I'm not honest enough with myself. I need people around me that are in my life day in and day out that can speak truth to me and help me see my idolatry for what it is. Verse 13, he talks about temptation being inevitable. We see in that verse there, he says, it's there, it's going to be there, it will always be there. But it's not a sign of sin. God always provides a way of escape. To really understand this, we need to look back at Israel's history again. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt. They were brought out 
uh, miraculously brought out with, after the 10 plagues and they were released and millions of them were marching toward uh, what they believed to be the promised land at the time and they get to a dead end, a literal physical dead end, right? And they're standing on the banks of the Red Sea and they have nowhere to go. Now, God could have just come along right then and just opened the waters up and let them walk across. But I don't know if you know the story, but the story goes that they sat there at that dead end for a week as the Egyptians pursued them. And God even allowed them to see this Egyptian horde, this Egyptian mob coming at them with all the fastest chariots they owned bearing down on them. And their temptation that they gave into was fear and anxiety and, you know, all these feelings that they had to the point that they even longed to be back in the slavery at that moment. Then God gave the way of escape. Then God opened the door and gave them the, the way of escape from this temptation to go back to the idol of wanting control. And oftentimes he does that with us too. Oftentimes we're put in positions where we have no, nowhere else to t turn and we have to trust God. And he gives us this way of escape from temptation. It's always there. Question is, can we see it? So not only do we have the history and experience of idolatry, we have the cure. Look at verse 14, a simple statement. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, by nature, we're worshipers. We all worship something. The question is who or what we will worship. And some of us demonstrate our worship in different ways, but the reality is every person that lives on this planet is a worshiper. It's exposed now maybe with, you know, three back-to-back -back football games yesterday and today. That could be it. Worshippers who are really upset that they can't be in their place of worship. There's lots of ways that we can say that. I watched some football yesterday, so I'm not just picking on you football fans, but the reality is we all worship. But reading this command to flee, it made me think of other places in the Bible where we're called to flee, right? Even this passage comes on the heels of chapter 9, verse 22, where we're called to run in such a way as getting the prize. So Paul uses physical activity a lot of times in his illustrations, He's saying, run in such a way to get a prize. So what are some other examples that specifically Paul gives? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with these, those who were called on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 20, flee fornication. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you don't get any other statements down, I want you to get this next statement down. It's important to note that when we are called by God to flee something, we are also called to pursue something else or really someone else. Oftentimes we're called to flee and run, but all that is is behavior modification, right? We try to get our kids to behave. Stop doing that. Please don't do that. That's annoying. You're annoying your sister and all these behavior modifications. But if we never get at the heart and they never pursue something different, they instead they just stop and they don't treat their sister with love, then it's just a halfway obedience. And for us, in the same way, when we're called to flee something, we're also called to pursue something, which is discipleship. Chase, Chase gave us a great challenge toward discipleship last week. You know, deep, lasting discipleship takes hard work. 
As I was considering this, I thought about an interaction I had with my daughters recently. Not the one that, where I got kicked out, but another one that was actually a nice one. We're in the car, we're driving along, and my oldest daughter, she's 16 now, and she said, hey, do you think that I'll be able to grab the rim, like a basketball rim someday, a 10-foot goal? And I said to myself, now, normally a 5'7", at the time, 15-year-old asking the question, that would be kind of ridiculous, right? But as you can see, she's been blessed with some hops, I don't know where she gets that from. Maybe my dad, I don't know. But she's going up against like a six foot tall girl there. And she does all the jumps for her team and she's five foot seven. So with that in mind, I said, you know, I don't know how much more you're going to grow. But if you work really hard at it, I believe you can do it. But it's going to take hard, hard work. So why did my mind go to this story besides being obsessed with basketball? When thinking of discipleship, I guess the way I see it is when we trust Christ as our Savior, we're blessed with the Spirit. We're blessed with Christ's life living inside of us. And although this is an amazing gift, we're still challenged in 1 Timothy 6, 10, 11, and just like we looked at 2 Timothy 2, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's just like Sydney would go at reaching her goal, trying to attain her goal with all the energy she could and lots of practice and hard work. We need that same type of focus in our pursuit of Christ and a relationship with him. It takes hard work. The worship of God is no casual thing, as C.S. Lewis put it. The reality is that oftentimes in our relationships, we work so hard maybe to, to win that person, you know, and, and to, to, to get married or, or to excel at school and education or maybe to really be good at this sport or, or this musical instrument or, or get the promotion. Oftentimes we get obsessed with working hard and excelling, but when it comes to our faith, We're lazy. And the reality is idolatry will will not disappear, but the struggle for idolatry will be made easier. Maybe we can overcome it at times when we continue to pursue Christ and godliness, faithfulness, and all the fruit of the Spirit. But oftentimes we just, we trust Christ as our Savior and we're like, cool, all right, I'm good. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to have a relationship with him, spend eternity with him, I'm good. We have this horrible attitude that doesn't push us to give more energy to our walk with Christ than when we would give to anything else. So as we finish up here, I think we could ask ourselves a couple questions. What caused the Israelites to be in this idolatrous state resulting in a horrible cycle of sin? And secondly, what causes us thousands of years later to be caught in that same cycle? Why is it that we can't look at verse 6 and 11 and listen to Paul and say, learn from these examples? Wake up. Stop worshiping idols. Why is it that we continue to struggle? And I think there's a bunch of answers to these questions, but a few that I thought about were we're obsessed with idols. We love our idols too much. Carl Ellis Jr. puts it this way, the more you pursue an idol, the less it delivers and the more it demands. The more you pursue an idol, the less it delivers and the more it demands. 
Maybe also these, another answer would be that we're fixated on behavior modification. We haven't seen results because all we're doing is trying to battle the things on the surface and not getting into the heart of the problem. Also, we're not pursuing the Savior and in turn not seeing the fruit of the Spirit lived out. Maybe you can take the time to consider this. Maybe if you're home watching this after this sermon or maybe here when you go home after lunch, consider and pray about this. What do I talk about most with my friends and family? Just a simple question. What do I talk about most? This past week and all the craziness has it been more about a political party? Has it been more about those crazy people or whatever it is that we want to say? Has that been the subject and most of what we've talked about? Or has it been about God's sovereignty, his control and his goodness even in chaos? What do we talk about? Oftentimes that shows where our allegiance lies. So how do we repent and refocus for 2021? We can start by following the greatest command ever given like our life depends on it. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7, if you want to turn there, you can even meditate on this during this last song. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise. Let's go ahead and stand together as we finish up today. Dear God, we come before you challenged and possibly convicted about our need to repent from idolatry. Or maybe someone's in here or hearing this at home or wherever they're listening or watching, Lord. Maybe they're convicted of their need to trust in you as their savior to begin with. I pray that today can be that day that they recognize you as their savior and king and Lord of their life. Or for the rest of us who maybe claim a relationship with you but recognize that we all struggle with idolatry Lord, I pray that today will be a time of repentance, a time of confession, a time of purposing in our hearts that 2021 will be different, that the lessons we learn from 2020 and past history will show themselves faithful so that we can see a new way, a new way of living, a new way of pursuing you that makes everything else in our lives pale in comparison that we won't be lazy spiritually, that we'll pursue you with a desire and a passion that we've never had before. Bless us as we go out this week and as we, even as we sing and allow you to work in our hearts. Just continue to convict us. Allow us to repent and turn and run toward a relationship with you. In your name we pray, amen.